Capital Allocators is brought to you by 10 East, an investment platform for sophisticated investors to access private markets. 10 East brings benefits of having your own family office without the cost and headaches of doing so. It's founded and led by Michael LaFell, former deputy executive managing member of Davidson Kempner. Michael and his investment team offer members the opportunity to co-invest by offering at their discretion. Michael and his team source, diligence, and commit material personal capital to each investment. The opportunities shared on the Tennis platform offer exposure to private credit, real estate, niche venture and private equity, and other idiosyncratic investments that typically aren't available through traditional channels. The principals have over a decade track record of investing in these types of exposures across more than 350 transactions. Post-investment, the Tennis team conducts ongoing monitoring and reporting, just as you'd expect from an institutional investment organization. I've known Michael for about a decade, and after becoming impressed by the quality of Tennis offerings, its research process, and high-quality investment team, I became an advisor to the organization and investor in multiple offerings. You can learn more and join me as a member at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Capital Allocators is brought to you by SRS Aquium. Since 2007, SRS Aquium has been obsessed with a single purpose, to simplify the administration of M&A deals so that deal parties and their advisors can focus on bigger issues. SRS Aquium was the pioneer in professional shareholder representation, digital M&A payments, and online stockholder solicitation, and they continue to raise bars and set industry standards. Case in point, their new VDR, which is changing the way deal parties think about virtual data rooms. No more tracking down thumb drives or asking how the VDR bill got so high. SRS Aquium keeps deal documents securely stored on the cloud for as long as you want for one flat rate. And working with SRS Aquium means you get the simplicity and stability of a single best-in-class partner from the pitch book through the last dollar out. 50% of U.S. private equity firms and 40% of venture capital firms worldwide count on SRS Aquium to optimize their deal process. To learn more about how SRS Aquium is simply the smartest way to run a deal, head to srsaquium.com. That's S-R-S-A-C-Q-U-I-O-M dot com. Hello, I'm Ted Seides, and this is Capital Allocators. This show is an open exploration of the people and process behind capital allocation. Through conversations with leaders in the money game, we learn how these holders of the keys to the kingdom allocate their time and their capital. You can join our mailing list and access premium content at CapitalAllocators.com. My guest on today's show is Sahil Bloom, one of the most dynamic up-and-coming creators in the financial community. Sahil spent a decade in investment banking and private equity before turning to writing prolific threads about finance and frameworks to have a more fulfilling life and career. He's amassed over a half a million followers on Twitter in just the last two years, writes a blog called The Curiosity Chronicle, started a podcast, and recently launched a seed stage venture fund called SRB Ventures. Our conversation covers Sahil's upbringing, his career in private equity, developing his own edge, 
and transitioning from the corporate world to life as a creator. We then discuss his favorite frameworks and how they apply to investing, including mentorship, goal setting, luck, and paradoxes of life. We close with the details of his recent fund launch, audience engagement, and how he manages his time. Please enjoy my conversation with Sahil Bloom. Sahil, thanks for doing this. Thank you so much for having me, Ted. Well, I know there's a lot to your story, and why don't we just start at the beginning? Yeah, let's start at the beginning. So I was born on Jan... No, <laughs> no I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, I'll save you the time. So I um, grew up in the Boston area. I was born in New York. My dad's a professor, so grew up in a household that really prioritized academics. My dad was a professor. My mom is Indian. And so I like had this kind of like mixed race background and also one that really prioritized school. And I had one older sister who was really like the the golden child of the family. I, I, I say that in a very loving way. My sister is the most amazing person I know. But she was the like academic all-star, a few years older than me, always had the highest GPA in the school and performing extremely well. And I was kind of the like ne'er-do-well son who was going around throwing a ball. And especially for my Indian mother, it was like a little bit of a struggle to figure out how I was going to fit in or make it. I just think the traditional construct in which a lot of immigrant families think is that you have to kind of prioritize really following the neatly trodden path, right? It's like you come and you work hard in school and you do well, and then you go and get your college degree and then you get a master's or a PhD. And my dad was an academic, so that was the track he had followed. My grandfather on my mom's side was similarly a professor. And so that was really what I think my mom envisioned for me. And I was following this path that was very different than that. I was playing baseball. She didn't really understand that baseball was a thing that you could pursue at such a high level either. I still remember in high school, I'd gotten pretty good at baseball by that point and had started throwing harder. And I went to some showcase and hit like 92 miles an hour on the radar gun. I was a pitcher. And shortly thereafter, Stanford offered me a scholarship to come play. And I remember telling my mom like, oh, it's junior year of high school. I'm doing fine in school, but not great. Probably not Stanford great. And I got this offer to go play there. And I told my mom and she was like, had this look on her face of just puzzlement. What do you mean? <laughs> what do you mean you're going to, you can go to Stanford? Like you haven't had to apply. You haven't had to do anything. And it was this really funny come to Jesus <laughs> she had almost of that I had pursued something that was different than what she had thought. But equally opening in terms of what it would enable me to do at the next stage of my life. So that, that was kind of how I ended up getting to Stanford. I put a lot of energy and effort into pursuing baseball and that opened that door for me. What did your father teach? My dad's a professor of economics and demography. So he was the chairman of the public health school at Harvard for a long time. Prior to that was the chairman of the economics department at Columbia right here. So we had been in New York until I was about five and then moved up to the Boston area. And he's still, I don't know, he teaches one class every, every other year or something like that. But for the most part, he's doing private sector work now. So what happened with your baseball career? I played for four years at Stanford and had an amazing experience. When I arrived at Stanford, I was kind of the stereotypical, arrogant, big fish, small pond type kid, if I'm being really honest with myself. I had gone to a small public high school in Massachusetts, and I thought really highly of myself, to be honest. I hadn't been like punched in the mouth yet, academically or athletically. Like School was relatively easy for me. I had done fine. I'd gotten into Stanford. Baseball was pretty easy in Massachusetts. You know, I was like, okay, I threw pretty hard, but I wasn't 
polished or really refined. And I wasn't as good as the kids who were really slinging it down in Texas, Florida, those places. And so I got to Stanford. And I remember the first day of school going to class and looking around and being like, oh, shit, I'm really not as smart as the other people that are in this class. And then going to the baseball field. And I remember watching some other kids throw a bullpen and just thinking like, man, the ball reaches the plate a lot faster when they throw it than when I throw it. (laughs) And I remember that realization. And I remember it being a really important year for me that freshman year because I really did just over and over again get punched in the face. And it's been an important lesson for me on life that you need to learn how to build that resilience and grit to get back up and to figure out what is your edge going to be. Because if it's not going to be And for most people, it's not pure talent. You can't just ride that wave of pure talent to unbelievable success at all these heights. For me, I had to figure out what it was going to be. What was my edge going to be academically, athletically, and really face that challenge for the first time in my life in a visceral way. I realize it's quite privileged to say that at age 18 is the first time you're facing that real challenge. And and even in this context, facing your real challenge at Stanford, getting to play baseball, it's definitely a privilege, but was certainly a transformative experience for me being there. When did you start thinking about investing? I had always loved business. And I had read from the time I was in high school, really, I think I had a cousin who now works at a hedge fund. His dad had worked at Goldman, and he had always talked to me about the Warren Buffett shareholder letters. And I remember he gave me a book one year of like all of the shareholder letters. And I read a few of them, and I thought it was so interesting, the depth that someone was thinking about business. Because when I thought about business, it was like, oh, I see something on the news or I like see a ice cream store in my town. I'm like, oh, that's a cool business. And reading those letters, you just find this level of candor and depth that really changed the way that I thought about these things. And so I had always been interested, but never really had the headspace to pursue it. I was like very focused on baseball at the time. I really thought I was going to go pursue and play professionally. That was my one big dream and my goal growing up. And so until I got hurt, which was later in my college career, my senior year, I hadn't ever just stopped and thought about, okay, what does investing look like? How do you go put money in the stock market? How do you learn more and actually take this to a tactical level rather than just theoretical? You mentioned getting hurt, which I guess that resilience from freshman year kicked in. What did you think about from there coming out of college? That was the next big moment in my life where I felt like I got punched in the face. And that was probably the hardest one because for a long time, I had defined myself in a very specific way. I had thought, okay, this is the moment that I'm training for is my junior year. After your junior year in baseball, you can get drafted and go play. And that junior season, I had sort of gotten hurt before the season. I had a very good year and pitched really well, but the velocity that I was throwing the baseball at steadily declined as my arm health followed. And at the end of that year, I saw a bunch of my friends get drafted and go off to pursue their dreams, and I didn't. And I shouldn't have, to be totally fair, because by the end of that year, I was throwing, I don't know, like 84 miles an hour. I wasn't a pro prospect at that point. But it was the first time I had realized like, oh, wow, there's something actually else. This is not going to be the thing that I'm going to be able to do. And I thought, okay, I'll come back and play my senior year and maybe I'll recover and I'll try to get healthy. And I was still clinging to little hopes of that. But by my senior year, in the middle of that year, it became very clear to me that it wasn't going to be in the cards. And I remember so distinctly The scariest thing of that decision was calling my dad and telling him that I was going to hang it up and not play anymore. And I still get like a little emotional even thinking about that conversation because for some reason I had tied so much of that dream to my relationship with my dad. I spent so much time with him 
on little league fields, he'd coach my teams or him coming to every single one of my high school games, my parents flying out to all these Stanford games and watching so much of our relationship was grounded in that. And I remember telling him and he said something like, I don't care. You had an amazing career. This is great, but you're going to do even better things with whatever comes next. And that was such a powerful moment in my life was just his warmth and acceptance of that because I, I was genuinely concerned that he was going to be upset and the reality was he just said okay on to the next thing like you're going to be just as accomplished at whatever it is that you pursue next and that was really the moment the switch flipped for me and I realized okay I'm now free to dedicate all of that energy and headspace that I've been putting in for the last 10 years to sports that determination everything that I've put into that into something else and so it's just like the world is your oyster what is that next thing going to be and what was it so for me at the time, it was investing. I tried to figure out where I was going to go work. I hadn't had a job. Most of these banks, consulting firms, private equity funds, hedge funds, whatever, they're hiring these kids that have gone and worked at Goldman Sachs for three summers in a row or Morgan Stanley or whatever. And I had none of that. And so I went and interviewed at all those places. I was fortunate to have mentors who at least got my foot in the door or the Stanford Athletic Network, whatever it was, and literally got rejected just like down the line by all of these places. And I thought I was pretty accomplished. I had done well in school at Stanford. I had a master's when I was leaving, but literally couldn't get anyone to take a shot on me. And the biggest reason was I had no clue what I was talking about, right? They would ask me about different things in investing or different things in how to think about the stock market or the bond market, whatever it was. I knew nothing. I mean, I was super, super green, had read some, but until you put things into practice, it's very hard. You can be theoretical, but you go in and you really don't know what you're talking about. And so I got rejected from a bunch of places. And I remember having this moment of like, what am I going to go do? Where am I going to go work? And then I met this firm. I got connected through the Stanford Network with this guy named Jesse Rogers, who had previously co-founded Bain & Company's private equity consulting practice, had left there and started a firm called Golden Gate Capital, which started as a $400, $500 million private equity fund and grew to be a $15 billion asset manager, much larger, incredibly successful over the 2000s. And in 2010, he spun out with two younger guys, Keone Schwartz and Randall Eason, and they founded a firm called Altamont Capital Partners. And the whole thesis of the firm was to go back to middle market private equity investing, really be value-oriented, largely focused on family-owned and operated businesses that are kind of going through that challenging transition point, and go create value for them. Go build out resources to get in the weeds with these companies and help them through that next phase of growth. And I was fortunate in that not only were they willing to take a shot on an athlete and kind of think, okay, we can mold him and train him, but also they were hiring at the analyst level, which was super rare at the time, less so now for private equity to do. And so I ended up joining their summer of 2014, right after I got done with school, right at the start of their second fund, which was an $800 million fund, a small group of people. It might've been like nine or 10 people on the investment team at the time. And it was such a learning-rich and experience-rich environment because of that small team atmosphere and where they were in the trajectory of the fund. What did you come to learn about investing over the eight years you were there? Yeah, so many things. Well, first off, you can read every damn book in the world, but until you get your hands dirty, you don't know a thing. That whole summer before starting, I remember really just dedicating myself to like 
five to 10 hours a day of just reading, doing whatever I could to absorb everything. I wanted to know everything about private equity before I got in. I must have spent a thousand hours over this, something absurd. And I got to work and I literally knew nothing. Everything was different than what I had read in the books. Everything that was theoretical, putting it into practice was really different. So I remember realizing it was apprenticeship. You had to get in and get your hands dirty and learn from someone and be around someone. I was fortunate to be in an environment where they really prided themselves on mentorship and apprenticeship. From an investing standpoint, I would say one of the biggest realizations I had was that it is very, very difficult to fight a bad market. And what I mean by that is you can invest in the best business in a shitty declining market and really have a tough time. And you can invest in an okay business in a great growing market and do much better with that, especially with the private equity model of like levering up cash flows. I just found that to be such an important point for investors to realize there of just like the mistakes we made. I felt like we made mistakes because we underestimated how bad a market was. The ones that became amazing investments, which we luckily had many more of, were the ones where it was like you were taking a good team and a solid business. You were getting it at an okay price as a result of that. But it was just a great market and there was an amazing macro around it and it was growing and you had a team that was proficient. Now you had a business model that you could improve upon and make better. And so you ended up in an environment where earnings were growing because the macro and the business was executing and the multiple was expanding because the market was becoming more attractive. So I would say that, I mean, for me personally, that was probably the biggest learning. The other one was just the importance of people and relationships. I had this prior conception that investing was all about numbers and all about spreadsheets and that you had to sit down and do the best analysis and beat someone with your analysis. And so you were going to generate alpha by being better at analysis. And what I realized in that world was that it couldn't be further from the truth. The reality was alpha was being generated on the ground interacting with people, building relationships where they wanted to sell to you at a lower price rather than someone else at a higher price because they liked you. And we were dealing with family-owned businesses. And so a lot of it was these people, it was their baby. They had built something in their hometown and they felt a lot of pride around it. And they wanted to sell or find an investor to come on who was going to have that same pride of building the thing that they had from the zero to one phase. And that is only done through building trust, building rapport, building relationships. And so when I thought about my own life trajectory and what I had learned on the baseball field, which for so long in my career felt meaningless, I then realized that actually all of that time spent in the locker rooms, on the fields with these different teams, different personalities, having to lead, having to follow, all of that had trained me for this new career, for this time when relationships and building rapport and building trust became of the utmost importance. Not to mention that everyone likes talking about sports, just for the most part, like (laughs) 95% of people I encountered, 95% of meetings I went to, I was somehow talking about baseball. And it became an edge for me in a very real and visceral way. If you went back, how would you trace your trajectory from self-admittedly knowing nothing to where you were felt like it was time for you to move on? I have always pursued learning and pursued growth as my kind of end game. I wanted to be around really smart people. That was why I was so excited to accept that role when I first joined. And I was so excited to be drinking from a fire hose around something. The way I felt like I was for so much of my life playing baseball. And for every year I was there, I constantly felt like I was learning new things. There was new experiences. There were new opportunities. The market was changing. We were doing bigger deals. The funds were growing. There was always something new to learn, something new to grow around. But for me personally, the 
change point was when COVID hit. I wasn't working 80 to 100 hour weeks on a plane three to four days a week. And I had more time to sit and to think, okay, where am I? Take stock of my life, of my career, of my family, of all these different things. Because what I find is when you're in the heat of battle, it's very hard to like zoom out and say like, why are we fighting this war, right? When you (laughs) zoom out, because you're just in it. And that career path, private equity, hedge funds, you're in the heat of battle constantly. Every single day, you're fighting for your life because there's always someone that's trying to take your lunch. And COVID uniquely provided an opportunity to take stock of the war. And for me personally, what I found was there was this entire side of myself that I was not using, which was my creative side, which we can talk more about. And it turned out that that creative side was actually my unique competitive advantage in addition to what I felt like was the relationship building and the rapport and trust that I was able to build with people. So I was leaving this whole side of myself off to the side, not using it. And then I also just started to think more about family. And to be totally honest, I was living in California. That role was in the Bay Area. Both my and my wife's parents are in the Boston area. And I realized they were getting older and they weren't going to be around forever. And my wife and I were starting to think about kids. And I realized that I wanted my parents to be a part of my kid's life. Someone asked me how old my parents were. And I said, my dad's 65. And he said, how often do you see them? I said, yeah, about once a year right now. And in COVID, less than that. And they said, okay, so you're going to see your dad 20 more times before he dies. And I remember that hitting me like a sack of bricks thinking about that. Because it's so easy to just go through the motions day in, day out. And not just do the math on, you might hug your dad 20 more times in their life. And it's these people that have been such an integral part of your life and you don't think about it. And for me personally, the positive that came out of a terrible thing with COVID was that I started to think about and prioritize my family more. And so summer of 2021, woke up one morning and said to my wife, I want to move. And God bless her. Within a month and a half of that, had sold our house in California, bought a house on the East Coast and moved and get to see my parents several times a month. And we have our first kid on the way. And so they're going to get to be a part of their life. So a lot of things have worked out in that regard. But those were the big things that changed in my trajectory. It just life changes. So I guess around that time, you started your blog, you started putting things on Twitter, and really, you could say took Twitter by storm. What was that pivot in your mind between the investing and the creative side? I started writing on Twitter in May of 2020. We were two months into COVID at that time. There was a whole lot of interesting stuff happening in the economic world at the time. Maybe, I don't know, I would put it up there in terms of one of the most interesting times in history, objectively. The market was ripping while the real economy was in the shitter. The Fed was pumping untold amounts of cash into the economy in all different ways, saying that there wasn't going to be inflation. Here we are, you know, (laughs) a little while later and clearly not the case. There was just so much that was happening. And there was unprecedented interest in learning about these things was what I noticed. But the other side of it was that people were not delivering educational content in a way that made sense to me. And when I say that, what I saw was this bifurcation where on one side you had experts, quote unquote, who pride themselves on talking over normal people's heads on using jargon, on using acronyms, on sounding really smart. And a lot of that has been built up because it's a good business model. Let me talk over your head because then you'll pay me to do what you could do yourself. Then on the other end of the market, you had the TikTokers, people telling you to YOLO into GameStop call options. And what I saw was this market where no one was delivering 
the middle ground, the layman's terms, simple, digestible explanations of these things that were happening in the market, the Toyota Camry, the thing that gets you from point A to point B. And so I wanted to fill that. And I had always loved storytelling. I had always loved writing. And I figured I had a unique way to do it. And I honestly had all these baseball friends who were constantly texting me questions. So I had this untapped pipeline of questions of what normal people were looking for. It was all these guys that hadn't gone into finance who were living in, you know, one of my good friends was living in Danville, Virginia, had no clue what was going on. And he just wanted to learn. He wanted like the simple way of understanding it. So he would send me something and then I'd sit down and write about it and put it out. And very quickly, I found there was a market for it and people started sharing it. One of the first things I put out, Chamath shared and it took off. And then I had, rather than 500 followers, now I had 2,000. And then I put out something else and it started building and compounding. But I never in my mind was like, okay, I'm going to quit my job at this private equity fund that's growing and we're doing great. I'm doing great in order to be a Twitter writer. Like That was never on my mind (laughs) as a thing. Obviously, life has changed in a number of ways, but it was never in my mind like, okay, I'm changing what I'm doing. It was just sort of an outflow of the things I was thinking about on a daily basis. And when did that get to the point where, in your mind, it shifted? Early 2021, I had rolled out a newsletter by then. My Twitter had surpassed 100,000 followers, I think, at the time. And basically, I was making more money at the time on this side stuff that I was doing in my like 10 hours on the weekend than I was on my day job. And I started to think, like, okay, it's been a nice side hustle and some income, but maybe there's actually something to this. Maybe there's a business to be built around it. Maybe I can parlay it into different things if I'm able to think commercially about it. And I've always been a little bit of a hustler. I just kind of have that mentality. I want to like try things out, test things, ideas, etc. And so I figured, okay, I really like investing. I really like all this writing and creative. What is an arena of investing where those two things come together? And what I saw was that the venture world did a lot of this. I was a big fan of Andreessen Horowitz, who was right in our right in our backyard when I was out in Palo Alto. And they had prided themselves on that for years. All of their team had prioritized being on Twitter and having a presence. They had started right around that time, this kind of media arm called Future. So they were doing a lot of writing. They were putting things out publicly. They were explaining things. They were building platforms. And so at that time, I thought, okay, well, maybe that's where I belong because I can find the middle ground of this creative side of me and the investing side of me and invest in these amazing future changing companies. But I didn't know and I didn't really have a case to pitch to those places about why I would be good at that type of investing. And so when I stepped back and thought about it, I said, okay, well, I should be doing more of this investing personally to prove and build a track record around it. And so I had started doing that in 2020. And in 2021, I kind of accelerated it, just doing more of that type of investing off my balance sheet, smallish checks, you know, like $5,000 to $25,000 checks into early stage companies, really with the thesis that I could write about them to help tell their stories, amplify their stories, and use my platform to kind of be a megaphone for them and for what they were doing. And that started to snowball. And that was what, by mid-2021, kind of got my head going on on this being a path. So I want to come back to what you're doing on the venture side. Before we do that, you've adopted a massive following from everything you've put out. There's so much in the curation of what you've done that's interesting. And I wondered, maybe we dive into some of the themes with this eye towards how do some of these ideas relate to investing? And there are so many different ones in, in these posts you put out. I guess the first question I have is, how in the world do you do this? 
right? Because so many of these things are really long threads that you can imagine someone taking months to come up with, whether it's frameworks or concepts. So really early on in doing this, I was pretty deliberate about trying to build structure around how it would self-perpetuate. I was very thoughtful about not wanting to be kind of a flash in the pan. Everything I've always done in my life, whether it was baseball or school or going on to my first job, I wanted to be consistent. I always prided myself on consistency. And I wasn't always going to be the most talented and I wasn't going to be the like most amazing shooting star around anything or put on the single most impressive performance. But I was just going to show up over and over and over and over again. And so what that meant to me with the content was I needed a way to do that because I knew that every now and then I'd get a good idea from someone and I would write about it thoughtfully. But I needed to be able to do that basically what I thought was every single week. And what is a way that you can create an engine that you do that? And so for me, the engine was consuming on one end, reading a lot, listening to things, whether it was books, newsletters, podcasts, whatever it was that was out there. I kind of thought of that as like the top of funnel of the engine, the things that you're putting into your engine. And then I needed a note-taking and kind of a mechanism for distilling that into unique insights that I could deliver to people in a simple manner. And so I kind of just built one at home. I use Notion, but there's a variety of things you can use. I use a paper notebook as well that I carry around with me constantly. But now I basically have gotten into this habit of I'm constantly consuming things, constantly grabbing unique pieces of insight that I think come from them, and then basically figuring out, okay, what is the lens that I can place on this that is unique to me? And what is the view that I can provide? You know, example of that is I wrote this thread about Evergrande when the collapse happened in 2021. And everyone had been writing about the technical side of this collapse. Everyone was writing about the bankruptcy and all the different numbers and like FinTwit, as it's called, was covered in writings and threads on this. No one had really talked about the psychological side of a collapse and of a deleveraging spiral. I had read all this stuff. I'd gotten all the notes from it. I had a great sense of what had happened. And that was going to be my unique lens. When I went and wrote about it, I wanted to write about the technical, but also the psychological. And so I distilled that and put it out there. And it was a unique piece. And so it got picked up by a lot of people. I was on TV talking about it. Like There was just a lot of cool things that came from it. But that's just an example of how I was thinking about building structure around an ability to do this consistently. I'd love to dive into just your thoughts on some of these themes. And maybe we start with mentorship. I know you've had a couple of really influential mentors over the course of your career. Yeah. So this is an interesting topic and one I've written about a lot recently that I think I have this perspective that mentorship, quote unquote, has become a little bit too formal. I think in the traditional sense of the word, what it meant was you had one person who you had a fixed meeting cadence with and you spent this number of minutes once a month with this person, you'd get together with them and you'd talk about your set of scheduled items that you were going to discuss. And I just don't think that model is tailored to the modern digital world. And so what I've come to realize and what I've accidentally built and now put a phrase around it is this idea of the personal board of advisors, like cultivating a group of five to 10, maybe 15 people from a variety of backgrounds and experience sets that you can touch base with and you can ask questions and you can count on to spar with you about ideas or give you different perspectives about things you're working on. 
And I think that is much more powerful because of its informality, because that means then if you're not free, Ted, I can go to so-and-so and ask them about something, or maybe they have a better idea of this specific issue that I'm facing or this specific thing so they can give me good candid feedback on it versus if you were my one mentor and you didn't know the answer or you weren't available, I'm shit out of luck. So I've come to think more of it that way. And to your point, I have been very lucky to cultivate some amazing mentor and friendships over the course of my life. People that I have no idea why they've taken an interest in me, but that I'm very lucky to have learned from over the years. How do you think about in that consistency and process lens that you like to use, touching base with, let's say, 5, 10, 15 people that you view as your personal board of directors? So I don't think there's a standard framework for how often or how frequently you need to do it. I think of this as like depth of relationships. These people should be people that you truly count as a deep relationship in your life. I don't think you can reasonably go to someone that you just met and say like, hey, Ted, just met you to film this. Will you be my on my board of advisors? Hey, how about it? Why not? Because you shouldn't want that person anyway. They're not going to be invested in your journey. They're not going to be invested in what you're building. You want to really have this be a natural outflow. And it's not actually something you need to ask someone either. I think that idea of like, will you be my mentor? It sounds like I'm asking someone to be my girlfriend when I'm in middle school. That's just not <laughs> the way life works anymore. I don't think any of my mentors or people that would be on my personal board of advisors would say that I ever formally asked them to do anything. Tim Cook has been someone who I've talked about publicly as someone that I've learned a tremendous amount from over the years. I met Tim at the gym in 2014. He happened to be one of the eight people that was crazy enough to show up at Equinox at five in the morning every single day. And he he remains to this day, I think, the hardest worker in the world. Like It has to be crazy working for him because you just know that you're not going to work as hard as the guy for him to be in the seat that he is and still show up and work out and get up at 345 every single morning. Like, I don't know how he sleeps or how he's made it to this day. But I met him you know, in a very organic context. We became friendly. We had talked for six or so months. I asked him if he'd be willing to get a coffee. We started to get to know each other better. And he was genuine. I wasn't looking for a job. And I asked him later on why he took an interest. And he just said, I could tell you were genuine. Because at that stage of people's career, one of the things that is very true is that there's basically this fact that everyone you meet, there's probably a 95% chance they just want something from you. And it's transactional. Someone wants a job. They want you to invest in their startup. They want X, Y, or Z. It's very rare that you run into someone who doesn't want anything from you, but learning or experience or knowledge. That was important to me. And it's something that I think young people out there should take note of is you're not trying to do any of this in a transactional environment because people sniff that out very quickly. Maybe a young person doesn't. Maybe if you come to me, I can't quite tell if you're being transactional. But experienced senior people, they're constantly approached by someone looking for something. And so they know how to sniff it out quickly and their guard is up for it. And if you show any sign of that, it becomes very clear that that's what you wanted and it's off-putting. So those are the things I've thought about. It's just being genuine, building relationships over the long run, having it go both ways, creating value in both directions, doing what you can, what, even if it's the smallest little things like you send someone a book for their birthday with a handwritten note that just says how much you appreciate the time they've spent with you. Tiny gestures like that really do go a long way. And those type of people, by the way, they get people that send them $10,000 bottles of wine. They get the Dom Perignon champagne sent to them all the time, the beautiful gift boxes, whatever. But you'd be surprised because a book with a handwritten note, something that shows that you really care with thought, 
is worth so much more to that person than just another fancy bottle of wine they're sent. I want to take a break in the action to tell you about NetSuite by Oracle, helping businesses accelerate growth and run better with a suite of ERP, financial, CRM, and e-commerce products. Here are three numbers for you to remember, 36,000, 25, and 1. 36,000 is the number of businesses that have been upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite turns 25 years old this year. That's 25 years helping businesses do more with less, close their books in days, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. Get a customized solution for all your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. Manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. Everything you need, all in one place. Right now, download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance, absolutely free, at netsuite.com slash allocators. That's netsuite.com slash allocators to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com slash allocators. And now, back to the show. You've written a lot about goals, and we'd love to just hear your own framework for thinking about goals. Yeah, absolutely. So for me, I kind of go to something I read from James Clear originally. He's the author of Atomic Habits, an amazing, amazing writer and a great friend and mentor. He talks about goals as rudders and then systems and processes as the oars. And I thought that was such a brilliant framework for thinking about this because when you think about goals, people constantly think like, oh, I'm going to set a goal and I'm going to go achieve it. But the real question is how? What are you going to do on a daily basis that's going to lead to you achieving that goal? And most people set goals that are way too far out. And you know, it's like I'm standing at the bottom of Mount Everest. I'm looking up at the peak. Yeah, it's a good goal that I want to get there. But how the hell am I going to get there? I have no idea. Like what path? Where are we going to go? Where are we going to stop? How are we going to do it? The goal is actually pretty useless in that instance. What's really helpful is having interim goals, the micro goals that are the shorter term on the way up that mountain. And then the process, the one foot in front of the other, how are we going to do it tactically? And so when I think about goals, that's how I think about it now is it's great to have the big picture vision, to have that view of the summit of like, where am I heading five years in the future, a year in the future, those big picture ones. But that is useless in isolation. You need things on shorter time horizons. So I think of it as you kind of have that long term one and then you have medium term and short term. And the short term for me might be 30 days a month, really short term. And then the biggest and most critical point to it is you have to have those oars, as James calls them. You have to have what are the actual daily actions, the micro actions, the systems, the environment that are going to lead to me achieving those short-term, medium, and long-term. So if my goal is, say my goal is to create a top five podcast, and that's what I want to do. That's great. But how are you going to do it? What are you going to have to do on a micro level to do that? Well, I'm going to have to spend 30 minutes a day researching to prep for given episodes. I'm going to have to contact one new person per week to get great guests on the show. I'm going to have to market it this way. I'm going to do that three times a week. Now, all of a sudden, I have a plan. And if I keep executing that plan, likely I'm going to end up closer to that goal. And if I realize a month in or two months in that something about my systems isn't quite right, it's sending me a little bit off course versus the goal, I can course correct now and I can adjust the systems in however I want. So that's how I think about goal setting. It's you have the big picture, you come back from that to figure out what the medium and the short term is, 
and then really, really focus on what are those systems in the short term that create that ultimate outcome. There's a tremendous amount that you talk about that are these sort of you setting goals, going after it with systems, course correcting. What about luck? I'm a big, big believer in luck, but I also think that a lot of luck is mischaracterized. I think that there are really two types of luck. There's like true luck, which is things you truly cannot control, where you're born, who you're born to, what side of the world you're born on, all of those things. Cannot control them. And then there's the other kind of luck, which I think you can engineer. And that is luck that is susceptible to situational enhancements, say. I call it engineered serendipity, but you can think of it as taking daily actions that increase your luck surface area. And story I typically think about when I think on that is in the movie Interstellar, there's this scene where the main characters are talking about this planet that sits right next to a black hole. And they're commenting on why there isn't any life on that planet because it seemed so ripe for life. And what they realize is that sitting so close to a black hole, there was no opportunity for those chance collisions of the universe to happen that sparked life. Like the asteroids got sucked into the black hole. The little things that would have otherwise hit the planet were getting sucked into the black hole. All of that. And it didn't allow life to be sparked. And so I think about that personally when I'm going through life. What are the black holes that are sitting there in your life that are preventing you from getting lucky? And how can you just take your aperture for luck and massively expand it so that you suddenly are like a luck magnet where random things are happening to you? And I hypothesize that there are daily actions you can be taking where you are more likely to get lucky. And people from the outside looking in will say like, wow, that was really lucky that that happened to you. Well, not really. The Tim Cook example is a perfect example of that. Really lucky that I met Tim Cook. Someone on the outside would say that. Wow, can't believe you met him. Yes, Also, I was showing up at the gym for six straight months at 5 a.m. because I wanted to get to the office by 6.30. And so I was working out five days a week at 5 a.m. because I knew I wanted to get to the office then. It wasn't going to the gym because I wanted to meet impressive people. It was literally because, okay, I'm going to work really hard, so I'm going to show up at this time every morning. It just so happens that the people that are willing to do that tend to be pretty impressive people. And so I was around people like Tim, like Haymont from General Catalyst. I mean, it was like this amazing group of people there that I built relationships with. And that wasn't really luck. It was sort of luck, but really it wasn't. One of the things you've written about that I maybe it goes alongside this is this idea of paradoxes in life, because that's a wonderful example of like, you didn't engineer going to the gym so that you would meet a curated group of people. But if you take a step back and think about it, yeah, of course, there's only a subset of people that are going to be doing that that might fit a certain character. So I'd love you to wax a little bit about paradoxes. Yeah, I love writing about this topic. I still think actually to this day, the piece I wrote on paradoxes is my most shared piece I've I've posted on Twitter. There's just so many of these that you encounter on a daily basis that you fail to put words to, but you know they're true. And so I think the topic resonates with a lot of people. You know, I think about working more and actually getting less done as one. We had this culture, you know, call it hustle culture that always told you you had to work 90, 100 hour weeks. You got to put your head down I and mean, finance is terrible for it, right? You have to sit at your desk as an investment banker for this many hours. And by the way, for, you know, eight of those hours, you're just browsing ESPN and CNN.com, but don't worry about that. You're putting in the hundred hour weeks and that's what you need to do. And there's this idea that you actually kind of, it's called Parkinson's law, I believe that you work fills the allotted time that you dedicate to it. And so you actually like, you create work to fill the allotted time. And it's not actually that you're getting more done or that you're getting better work done. It's just that you're spending more time getting less done. 
So I love that one. I love the idea of like slowing down to speed up. That one has really rang true for me of this culture and dynamic where you constantly want to be moving and you want to move faster and faster and get more and more done. And sometimes you just need to stop. And sometimes the best action you can take in a moment is actually inaction because you're able to now stop. To my point earlier on zooming out from the battle and seeing the war, you can stop and you can evaluate everything going on around you and observe how other people are reacting. And then you can actually figure out what's the better next course of action. So you really do take one step back to have those two steps forward. I've always thought that was one that was really, really powerful. Another one I love that you've written about are sort of mental models and frameworks. And curious, how do you take it from writing, hey, here's a list of behavior biases, here's a list of mental models, to using them in your practice of investing? This is a really interesting topic because I do think, and I've contributed to this, the general topic of like mental models, frameworks, et cetera, it's very sexy and in vogue. Like Everyone's like, look at all these mental models that I memorized. And the reality is they're only as good as your battle testing of them and your ability to create and be dynamic with them on the fly. It's great that I know a million mental models. I have my toolkit full of all my tools in my belt. But if I walk up to a nail and I pull out a screwdriver, okay, well, that's not going to do a whole heck of a lot, right? So I think personally that it is great to study. It's great to learn. But until you flip the switch and put them into action on a daily basis and analogize with them and think about how they apply to different things or don't apply or how they need to be tweaked, they're useless. And it's the same thing with every self-help and business book in the world. People like them because they feel good when they read them. The reality is most people go nowhere with it because they're not willing to really put into action and battle test those ideas. And so for me, what I'm constantly focused on is with any idea I read, learn, write about, I want to put it into action immediately for me. And so if I learn a new framework, Christensen's model of disruptive innovation, famous Harvard Business School professor, this whole idea that a large incumbent overserves and underserves a whole lot of their customers. And so you can come in and disrupt that market by providing the perfect solution for one of those overserved or underserved segments. And then you can use that as a wedge to grow. And that idea, I first read it, it made sense to me in concept. But then what I was focused on was like, okay, where does this apply? What startup have I seen recently that's trying to do this? And I looked into fintech and I was looking at a business called Mercury that I'm an investor in, a bank for startups. And I was trying to figure out, okay, how does it fit? How does it not? Where does this fit in? How does like unbundling Salesforce as a thesis in the broader market play out with this model? I was constantly trying to figure out how this fit or didn't into different things I was looking at. And by doing that, by analogizing, by connecting things, by having this network and map in your mind that you're building, that's how you figure out when you're going to use these things and when you're not. And it can be really helpful or it can kill you because if you try to jam something in that doesn't fit, you'll think about it in the completely wrong way. So I think about that a lot. I mean, some of the best investors in the world who I'm students of or have been lucky enough to be around talk about this exact thing a lot. I think Josh Wolf at Lux Capital, he writes all about this type of stuff. Like directional arrows of progress is one of his big frameworks that I'm a student of. And honestly, I haven't quite figured out my own adaptation of that one yet. I've written about it. I've thought about it a lot, but I haven't quite figured it out yet. And so I think there's like also being circumspect about, about what you have and what you haven't actually adapted into your own toolkit. You started talking about the process of going from private equity to doing your own angel investing. And I know recently you raised a first fund and would love to hear about how you've thought about the 
Sahil Bloom value proposition now in the venture world? So yeah, I about a month ago announced my first fund, which was a $10 million fund called SRB Ventures. SRB, my initials, um, was really, really- <laughs> wildly, ex- creative. Yeah, wildly creative. <laughs> I wanted it attached to my name in some way because it was so directly tied to my platform and things, which will tie into my explanation of the value prop. But I had basically, by the end of 2021, I had deployed capital into 40 or so investments personally. And a number of them were doing very well. I had seen an acceleration of access, an acceleration of the size of the allocations that I was getting access to, but my personal balance sheet only went so far. And you know, I was about to have a kid. I was like, it's not the smartest thing in the world for me to be putting all my money into illiquid 10-year startup bets. And so I started thinking about the idea of raising a fund. I was fortunate that I went out to a few mentors, advisors, investors who I've been around, and they were willing to support me. And so in January, I raised a fund and started writing checks. And The whole thesis that I had with it was that the venture landscape had fundamentally changed. You were having this disruption where a barbell had formed, where on one end of that barbell, you have the Sequoia, Benchmark, Andreessen, Tiger Global, these like big name cachet firms who, when they write a check into you, you're kind of stamped as like, this company has raised money from one of the big guys. They're going to go off and they're going to be off to the races. And then you had this vast wasteland of mid-tier VCs who didn't have a clear value prop or reason for being. They didn't quite have the name cachet of the big guys, and they didn't have direct levers that they were going to add value. They would say they were going to plug you into their network, or they would say they were going to be helpful with recruiting or with intros, whatever it was. But that's pretty ambiguous. And so some of them do really well by specializing. They'll say, like, we're the best at fintech, and we know the most because we've been able to do that. And I think that's a way to stand out. But for the most part, there were all these generalist VCs in the middle. And then on the other end of this barbell, you had people like me. And those are people who are small, by definition, you know, tiny fund, $10 million fund, but have a very, very clear lever of value add. And for me, that is the platform. That is the fact that I can go reach millions of people on behalf of your startup and amplify very directly and very viscerally your message and tell your story to the world and help with that both internally because I have frameworks that I can help you with and build that out and also externally by just talking about your things organically. You know, I have my Twitter, I have newsletter, I have a podcast. And I talk about the things that I see. And if I'm seeing your startup and I'm spending time with you, that's going to be a lot of what I talk about. I mentioned Mercury earlier. That's an example of it. Amazing company. And so that as a value proposition was what I wanted to raise against. And like that thesis that I could take the platform and use that megaphone to add value to these companies, that they would see value in that. So I would continue to win allocations and that it would compound over the long term because I would be helpful. They would tell all of their companies or all of their founder friends that were starting companies, and I would continue to accelerate and get into more and more things. The last piece I'll say is the tiny size is a feature, not a bug. A lot of people raise a small fund because they don't want to go raise a big fund next. And I am not going to do that. And the reason I say that is because at $10 million or at $25 million, probably max, you are collaborative with everyone. Your check size for my $10 million fund, my check size is 100 to 250K. You can get that into pretty much any deal if you have real value add. And people will send you deals. Andreessen Horowitz might send me a deal. Kraft, David Sachs might send me a deal because they want to have me involved because they see the value I can add. Tiger might send me a deal because they see the value I can add. If I have to write a million, $2 million checks because I've raised $50 million, 
I'm no longer collaborative on seed and series A rounds. Now I'm competitive. And that completely changes the game of it. My deal flow changes. I have to hire a team to go out and source deals because they're not just coming into me. And I have to fight for allocation in things, which is a different ballgame. And one, honestly, that I just don't want to play. It's just a completely different set of skills. How do you think about understanding who your audience is and therefore what types of companies you want to invest in that you can help amplify? My audience is broad now. When I first started out, I would say my audience was like, more core fintwit people that were writing and learning about call options and finance and things like that. And maybe there was a smattering of crypto as I wrote a few things about the crypto world. But now I've been pretty deliberate over the last year about writing about almost anything. I mean, my Twitter bio says something to the effect of explore my curiosity and share what I learned along the way. That is intentional because I'm interested in a whole lot of different things. And if I want to write about space one day and space science, and then the next day I want to write about storytelling, I want to have the mandate to do that. And the audience follows that. So now I'll have people that are interested in space and space technology and people that are interested in storytelling. And maybe there's some overlap, maybe not a lot. And that's fine. They can all be within this pool. And so now the audience is over a half a million on Twitter. There's a broad group in there and it hits most every bucket of the GDP and economy, I think, with some level of interest. How do you manage your time? Because (laughs) you can imagine as soon as you start investing in these companies, every single one of them will want you to help and leverage and amplify. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) managing time is an interesting and challenging thing. I've gotten a lot better about saying no to things. That's, I would say the number one unlock that I've had in my life over the last year. I, for a long time, was the person that said yes to everything. And I actually think in your 20s, you should say yes to everything. And I think your 30s, or once you've started to have some sort of acceleration in your career, is like the time to start saying no to most everything. Saying yes gets you into a bunch of rooms. You have a bunch of the lucky opportunities, the things that hit you. And then saying no allows you to get leverage on the things that you're starting to do well. And so for me, I've just learned to start saying no to things that aren't going to push forward against my daily actions. That has unlocked a whole lot of time. I used to, and in my prior job, that was more of my job. I spent all day emailing or on phone calls or in meetings. I don't have to do that anymore, really. And so if I don't want to take phone calls, if I want to spend a day writing, if I want to block out four hours to write in the mornings, I can do that. And it's actually core to exactly what I'm trying to do and build. And so I've had to build in systems to the point earlier that allow me to achieve my goals. Part of that system is I mainly only do calls on Fridays. Part of that system is that I spend the first hour of the morning reading. And then I spend about two hours after that in some form of focused writing, focused work. Investing, I'll do pitch calls during the course of the day. Although to be honest, pitch calls for me, I'm doing a better job and I will continue to do a better job of really only doing a call, a pitch call with a founder after I've spent several hours of time developing an understanding and generating a bunch of excitement around the concept, idea, market, etc. And so my goal would be for the pitch call to be more about just learning what makes the person tick than anything about the idea or the business. Because that for me is, it's more my wheelhouse. I'm better at that. It's more my zone of genius. And it also saves me from wasting the founder's time. Because if I get on a pitch call and there's a 2% chance that I do the deal, that's a waste of a founder's time that they probably should have spent on some other business activity. And it's a waste of my time. So I'm trying to be more deliberate about that over time. To your question on founders asking for time, whatever it might be, 
you generally find that there's an 80-20, like 20% of the companies take up 80% of your time with different things. I also think there's boundaries to it, right? Like I'm pretty deliberate about the things I will do and the things I won't. I'm not going to retweet every single post that you put out as a company because then that dilutes the value of what I'm building. But when you announce a big announcement, am I going to help you and help amplify that and put out a post about it or make a video or do something to help? Absolutely. But those tend to be event-driven versus like ongoing, you know, getting texts from someone frantically. And how do you think about this collision of completely unbiased exploration of curiosity, which you've been doing with vested interest? You're investing in these companies. You're trying to help them tell their stories. It's a great question. I haven't thought about it a lot. And the reason I haven't thought about it is because the companies are sector agnostic. So I'm spending time across a bunch of different industries with these companies. That sends me down a variety of rabbit holes. And it's not a company-driven rabbit hole as much as it generally is the space that they're building around, why it has inefficiencies, what the problems are that exist around it, and being able to dive down on that. And it might be that the company's lens is the one that I'm looking through and saying, like, X company solves this. The reality with most startups is if you're building in a good market... There's probably like 10 teams that are working on the exact same thing at the same time as you. And you have to be comfortable with that, actually. And you have to know that like on paper, you're probably not investing in the best team. There's just a good chance there's another team out there. But execution is what matters at the end of the day. And how are you going to help them and accelerate them to go and be the team that wins? Most markets don't have winner take all either. There's going to be a few people. Consumer social has been one of the areas where there's been real winner take all like Facebook existing meant that MySpace was not going to exist. But very few markets really have that. Like in fintech, there's so many that have risen and grown, right? There's like Brex, Mercury, Ramp, all of these different companies that are effectively going to try to go and attack the same market. Now there's all of those companies within Latin America and there's all of those companies within the Middle East or wherever. And so there's so many opportunities out there and it tends to just be an endless rabbit hole of learning when you start to explore those different areas. I'm curious how you've self-assessed the change from spending whatever it was, 80 or 90 hours a week, even if some of that was inefficient, on companies doing every last thing to a life where you're writing, you're podcasting, you're building an audience, and you're doing due diligence on companies. So the due diligence is different. In private equity and in my prior role, we'd spend six-ish months probably on average prior to doing a deal. And Part of it was by necessity. You were doing 10 deals across a fund and writing really meaningful checks, and you had to know you were going to follow on into them or equity cure if things went challenged, etc. The diligence is obviously different in the venture world. There's no financial models for a pre-seed startup. There's, you're really trying to get a feel for the, how the person ticks. Is the, business, is the business model good? Is there a profitable underlying business model? Is the market a really attractive and large and growing one? But there's not a whole lot beyond that for these really early ones that you can really dig into. So there's less time, I think, on a per deal basis, obviously. For me personally, it's all about spending more time in the things that I would qualify as being in my zone of genius. And in my prior role, a lot of my time was spent quarterbacking things. I was emailing, routing things. You were sort of like a one of those phone board operators in the mid-senior ranks at a private equity fund. You're like routing different things to different diligence providers and dealing with different crises at portfolio companies and helping manage them from a relationship standpoint. You were like, really have to be good at that. And I was good at that, but I don't think I was ever going to be the best at that or really care about that. 
And I think that both from the firm side, they deserve someone that really is going to care and want to be the best at that. And from my side, I should want to be spending my days in my 30s. I'm going to die at some point. Like I want to spend my days on things that I think I could really be the best at. And the things I'm doing now, I'm not being arrogant when I say this. Like I really think I could be the best at them. And so that's why I care. And it's why I have meaning in the things that I'm pursuing on a daily basis, because I really feel like I'm working towards something that could impact a lot of people and be really meaningful. All right, Sahel, I can't really let you go without asking a couple of the closing questions I customarily do. So what's your favorite hobby or activity outside of work and family? Deadlifts. I don't know if you've ever gotten that answer on the show. No, that's a new one. This is from my baseball days. I have a gym built out in my garage at home, and I still love to get into the meathead stuff that gets me hurt now and then now in my older age. But man, I still get a thrill out of that. (laughs) All right. What's your biggest personal pet peeve? I don't like the pick your brain question. You know, can I pick your brain? Don't love that. I think more broadly than that, it's like transactional people is my biggest pet peeve. People that you constantly just feel like they're trading. There's something, trading relationships, trading clout, whatever it is. I don't like interacting with people that are transactional. How about on the investment side, your biggest investment pet peeve? Saying we don't have competitors. That's probably my biggest one. And it's one that I encounter a lot. Who are your competitors? And they just say like, well, honestly, we don't really have any. It's just not true. (laughs) It's, It's disingenuous. Which two people have had the biggest impact on your professional life? I would have to say my parents. My parents are, I don't tell them this enough. They're just the most amazing mentors, people to me and everything that they've done for me and supporting all the twists and turns that my career has taken, especially recently and being the like loving, supporting parents, despite not understanding me at any phase has been a really, really amazing gift. What's the biggest mistake you've made and what did you learn from it? I would say the biggest mistake I made was probably not making the decision sooner to move back to the East Coast, be closer to family and prioritize that. I probably, in hindsight, should have transitioned career and made a switch to living closer to home several years earlier because I knew it. Like deep down, I knew probably three, four years in that I should try something different. But the momentum of life and the momentum of success, when you feel like you're doing well at something and you're being patted on the back for it, tends to grab people. And I think there are a lot of people that get caught in that trap. How about on the investment side? I didn't stand up for one that I really didn't think we should have done back in the day. I was pretty junior. And so I kind of used that as a cop out in my own mind to not say anything. And I actually think it'll end up being okay, but for a lucky reason, not for a principled reason. The funds are great and they will do well. And that's not a knock on that. But I really should have stood up for something when I had the unique insights or the details around it. And I still regret not doing that. What teaching from your parents has most stayed with you? I think having an appreciation and an empathy and an understanding for the different sides of the world has been a huge one that has stuck with me. I mentioned my mom grew up in India. I spent a lot of time in India as a kid. And I saw in a very real way how lucky I was and how privileged I was with my upbringing and where I was. And that in a different set of circumstances, I would have a very different life. And that has instilled in me a real responsibility that I feel to find ways to change that and to even the opportunity playing field. This whole concept of like talent is evenly distributed. Opportunity is not. There's plenty of curious, amazingly intelligent kids that are born on the streets of India today who I would love to see a world 30 years in the future where they have the exact same opportunities as I feel like I did being born to an academic and middle-class family in the Northeast. 
Great. All right, Sal, last one. What life lesson have you learned in your short life that you wish you knew a lot earlier in life? Kindness is never going to go out of style. And just being nice and kind to people that you're around can get you a really, really long way. Sal, always fascinating. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, this was a blast. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard, hop on our website at capitalallocators.com where you can access past shows, join our mailing list, and sign up for premium content. Have a good one, and see you next time.